Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023. Uh, Longtime viewers and listeners know if there's one thing that I care about, it's words and language. They matter and uh, their misuse or abuse reflects a deeper malaise. A few months ago, we did a really interesting show with Rena Raphael on what she calls the wellness scam, Jim's Guru's Goop and the Cult of Self-Care. She has a book out, The Gospel of Wellness. Of course, the reverse is really true when these new linguists talk about wellness. They're actually talking about unwellness. The abuse of language when it comes to wellness, I think, is both a cause and a consequence of much of what's gone wrong in our world today. Um, And of course, the cult of wellness extends into many other areas as well, including, surprise, surprise, architecture. Uh, My guest today, Rainier de Graaf, There's a really interesting new piece out on architecture and the wellness industry and the way in which the misuse of language and the abuse of language um, uh, in this wellness industry has spread to architecture and uh, infected, if that's the right word, as a kind of virus, our notion of what buildings and cities should look like. This is all part of an important new book that um, Rainier um, has just launched. It was out yesterday. Uh, it's called Architect Verb with a small a and a small v. Uh, and he, uh, as a Dutch architect, is joining me from the great city of Amsterdam today. Uh, Rainier, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Um, tell me a little bit about the way in which you see the the language of wellness infecting architecture and perhaps uh vice versa as well well it's 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 one of a long series of terms which which have affected architecture over the past decades i mean in the book it's grouped to livability excellence creativity innovation and and more recently uh wellness um i think it is it's interesting because like uh like the other terms the term wellness or at least what it alludes to has has quite a long history. Um, I mean, architecture um, had a relation with the medical over the ages. You know, from Hausmann's sanitation project for Paris to the early modernist sanatoria and and therapeutic notions that were uh, engulfed in architecture um, to more recently wellness. What I what I think it's a relatively new term, but it has already changed its meaning since its introduction in our uh, profession and like so many of these terms it becomes a form of branding architecture which in every other respect is just the same uh, from (laughs) from from when before the word did its entry so i'm not sure if there is a real relation beyond a realistic uh, linguistic relation and an obligation to use the word all the time it's one of the many boxes as an architect you have to tick these days um, if you want to convince anyone to get your buildings built. Rainier, what's going wrong? Is, is the problem language or is it is the real problem the 
the marketing firms, the executives, the uh, the double speak behind it all, or are they all sort of bound up with one another? Who's coming up with this nonsense language? Are they are they um, coming up with language to promote their own products, or do they actually believe in this nonsense? I, I think all. I mean, in the age of the market economy. Almost all language is is promotional language. There is an ulterior motive tied to um, all of the terms, and I think the term wellness, like the term livability, like the term creativity, they are part. You know, just as architects, I would say, often misunderstand the world. The world is also very good at misunderstanding uh, architecture and projecting uh, these things on buildings and on architecture and endowing it with all sorts of unrealistic expectations what you know buildings might do and and while cultivating these expectations forgetting about what buildings can really uh offer i think it's i mean if i can digress from the subject of wellness uh for instance to its earlier iteration of livability which is i guess the the equivalent applied to the urban environment it is very, very ironic that ever, the more we use the term livability, uh, the fewer we have livable cities, actually, in the sense that, you know, if I take Vancouver as an example, uh, it was the world's most livable city in 10 consecutive years. And in the same, in the same time, it became so expensive that it became too expensive a place to live for normal people. So, so uh very often the terms embody a kind of self-defeating proposition. Right. We, we seem obsessed with these lists, as you suggested, of the, the, the best places in the world to live. It reflects, I think, our increasingly mobile world where people drift from city to city, from airport to airport, and the kinds of cities that always show up, as you say, there's Vancouver, Vienna, Copenhagen, it's always the Danes who managed to get to the top of these things. Yeah. I'm not sure how livable yeah. Copenhagen I think, I, I think that would merit uh, an entire book of its own. How, how yeah, well, know. how to make, I mean, the day, I, I, I do so many shows, and every, in the end, everyone always says, why can't you be like Denmark? Even the Danes aren't like Denmark, and Copenhagen isn't really Copenhagen. And the one that shows up, which is really astonishing, is where I live, San Francisco. Right. I was a, piece a couple of years ago about New York City losing its top spot on the world's best list. Now, apparently, San Francisco is a better place to live. I mean, San Francisco, this is where I live. It is a truly um, post-feudal place of enormous wealth and poverty. Yeah, um, so I'm as ready. you say, the cities themselves are reflections of our own broader neoliberal architecture. Are there any Good cities left. I mean, you're in Amsterdam. I love going to Amsterdam as a tourist. I'm always there. Uh, but is Amsterdam ultimately as problematic as Vienna or Copenhagen well, or San Francisco? In, in, in this age of global competition, I think all cities run the same risk. And, and it's just a matter of how far along they are in the process uh, of, of how bad they become. I mean, I think the irony is that, you know, the discovery of places in this world uh, is very often the beginning of the destruction uh, of places. I, I do think, you know, that the early livable cities, which were a product of essentially protest movements against freeways, against rash modernizations, against demolition plans, in, 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 
you know, in the early time of counterculture in the 60s, I think these movements really accomplished quite a lot and then made cities more livable. Uh, but the more they started to broadcast their own success, the more these cities were discovered globally, the more they were discovered by big money, by investors driving up prices so that in, in a way what, what was a blessing at one point became a curse. I'm not sure how how happy you should be at all that you you know trumped New York on the list. Yeah, um, well, I live in San Francisco. I think being top of this list is bad on lots of fronts. Firstly, as you suggest, it's a lie. Secondly, it means more people will want to come and live where you live. Um, we did a show on New York. We've done many shows actually on New York. One with the New York Times architecture uh, correspondent Michael Kimmerman on. Um, uh, the intimate city walking New York. There's always been the assumption that the more physical a place is, the more you can walk it as opposed to drive it, the better the place is. Is this more glib neoliberalism, uh, Rainier, or is there some truth to it? Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the problem with wellness, livability, uh, and, 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 and all of those terms, or even beauty, you know, uh, something that else they, they make lists of nowadays. You can't argue with the terms in and of themselves. I mean, there are terms that permit no antonyme. I'm certainly not an advocate for unlivability, uh, <laughs> you know, lack of innovation, unsustainability, and ugliness. Uh, but the fact that you can't argue, the fact that the terms do not permit an antonyme makes the whole discussion entirely problematic and, and entirely symbolic because... Um, the prevalence of the terms has also eliminated any meaningful discussion about the city. I'm not against walking per se, uh, of course, but the, but the fact that you can solve the city's problems, you know, by pedestrianizing them alone, I think is a bit naive. Yeah, and Amsterdam, of course, is a, a very walkable city, but it doesn't make it any more egalitarian. Brussels is... Well, in ugly, fact, the more, but... walkable, the more walkable we became the more unequal the city has Yeah, become. I mean, if you compare, and whenever I go to Brussels and Amsterdam, people in uh, Amsterdam always say, well, if you want an ugly city, go to Brussels. But Brussels got destroyed by the planners, and yet it's much more affordable. I mean, it's a much uglier place with these disgusting roads running through it. But if, if, for, a, if for a writer or a creative person or someone without a lot of money, you can live in Brussels. You can't live in Amsterdam. No, at least not in the center. Uh, that's that's certainly true. And, 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 and then the politics of this, Renny, are really interesting as well. You, you write about the cult of tradition on the part of conservative, quote unquote, conservative politicians like Michael Goh, who's an intelligent conservative, which makes him perhaps a little bit more interesting and provocative. Um, he has promoted traditional architecture and urbanism. What do we make of that in linguistic terms? Is this is traditional architecture and urbanism just really another way of describing reactionary architecture and urbanism? Well, in some ways, it is. I think it's it's very ironic that you know terms like beauty and place, you know, in themselves laudable uh, laudable conditions have become so much part of a culture war, so much part of a culture war waged by the right end of the political spectrum, largely to enforce prejudice. You know, read any of the other reports written by the conservative government, read the reports written by Scruton. They do not ultim ultimately define either term. They are incapable of defining what place is. They're incapable 
uh, of defining what beauty is. And then they end on let's ask the people. And, and in that sense, they, they, they throw the question back at the people and then, of course, reinforce all the longstanding pre uh, prejudices. And, and it becomes a kind of uh, weaponized term in, in the context of populism. And, yeah. and predictably promotes traditional architecture. And I'm not against traditional architecture, but I just think it's in, insane that in a country with the massive housing shortage that is the UK, we have a discussion on style before we have a discussion on giving people homes full stop. I mean, I don't care that much whether they're traditional model, uh, modern or anything, but it seems that the discussion of style in part and parcel is in a is a way to escape the more fundamental discussion of you know uh, the availability of affordable homes for people at large. Your your book um, has been described as skewering the double speak. That those are the marketing people at um, yeah at the other describing yeah. your work. I mean, we all need to sell ourselves for better or worse. I mean, when we think of double speak, we of course think of Orwell, yeah. uh, and Orwellian is. Or Orwellian uh, thinking about observing propaganda and surveillance and, di and disinformation. Um, yeah, but that was a big inspiration, I have to say. Yeah, that well, let me finish on Orwell. I mean, yeah. of course, his his book, Politics, uh, his uh, essay, Politics in the English Language, is also central here. But I suspect, Rainier, and I can't speak on behalf of the great man, of course, because he's no longer around, but I would suspect he might have a degree of sympathy with Gove's notion of traditional architecture. After all, there are people on the left who are rather critical of Orwell's cult of Englishness. What do you think Orwell would think of all this? I, I think you're probably right. I think he may uh, endorse Gove's preference for traditional architecture. I certainly don't think he would endorse Gulf, Gove's use of language. Uh, I, I think he would find himself in a place that you know, yes, he likes traditional architecture, but I think he would be absolutely aghast uh, in the context of the language that is be and all the marketing uh, speak that is being used today. And I, in fact, I think had he lived today, it would have inspired him to write another novel with another form of, uh, you know, new yeah. whiskey. We, so we, we've done, be, on the show, we've done a lot of thinking about public space, doing one in a couple of weeks with the New York, um, thinker Seth Lowe, why public space matters. Is public space central to this and the way in which Silicon Valley in particular has appropriated the term public space to promote the private interests of social yeah. media companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter? Well, I think, you know, like the other terms, the term public space became a problem or public space became a problem once we invented the term public space like so many of the terms they are the indication of of a problem of of the inherent lack of truly public space public space is a term <laughs> generally used by private interests to privatize space to condition space to prescribe rules uh for space etc etc and that is the I mean, so many of these terms are, in fact, euphemisms for, for you know, almost their, their complete opposites, their antonyms. I mean, yeah, public it space is, is used is by those who want yeah. to privatize space and make their private space feel like public space whatever, without ever truly wanting to make it public. 
But should we be nostalgic or affectionate towards, and I use this term carefully now, because as you suggest, anytime anyone uses it, they're really referring to private space. But I mean, parks and streets and other places where anyone can go in, in cities, should we still use the ideal of public space as the model to, to build a and I use, I, I've got to be careful now talking to you because every time I use these words, I seem, I, I feel like an idiot, but livable, livable spaces. I mean, is uh, I public mean, space even a meaning? I mean, if, if you take it out of its marketing language, it, it, can we legitimately talk about it in architectural terms? Well, yeah, we can, you know, there, there's talking and doing. Uh, you know, and I, I sometimes have the feeling the more we talk about these things, the more we actually do. I mean, talking has become a substitute for for working and action to a large degree. Of course, I'm not against livable spaces. Of course, I'm not against space to be public, but it's against the I'm against the abuse um, of the terms. And I think, you know, there is a real problem there. And if we want our streets back, if we want our parks back. Um, if we want our public space back, I think the solution of the problem, of any problem, begins with the frank acknowledgement that there is a problem. Uh, then think very, very hard about that and maybe then, you know, stop applying the terms per se and, and simply do the indigenous things we all feel are good. You're a, a famous architect. You're not just a writer. You've done all sorts of projects. Um, you're based in Amsterdam. You understand space. Of course, the Dutch are very good at understanding space. That's why Johan Cruyff was such a great football, football player. player. Um, yeah. What should a good architect do these days, Rainey? I mean, what do you do? You, you're attacking language in, in, and all this nonsense in your new book. But as an architect, do you reject projects? If someone walks in and talks about livability and blah, 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 do you say, no, thank you? Well, it depends. That would make me reject a hell of a lot of projects to the point that I think <laughs> writing would be the only thing I would have left doing. I, we just decide to take on projects largely, uh, you know, determined by the degree to which people that ask us to do things talk about other things as well, uh, which, uh, you know, then allows you to shut your ears to the language that is overly cliched and, and get on with, you know, what is really meant between the lines. But I think, you know, we, we go about our business and I've seen, you know, I've worked in the world before these terms were prevalent. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll live long enough, you know, to, to see a world in which these terms subside and we can sort of do what we do, I guess. There's a darker element here as well. We can make fun of all these terms, but there's a new kind of, authoritarianism or totalitarianism that seems to be in the making, um, a, a, a new kind of perhaps enlightened despotism. Yeah. We did a show uh, on uh, Mohammed bin La, uh, Salman's uh, yeah. Kingdom of Executions with uh, a human rights group in England, a Reprieve, that noted that the Saudis execute more people than anywhere else in the world, I think, including Iran. Um, you focused on this new Saudi utopian project, Neom. Um, uh, you've written about uh, the doublespeak here, and it seems to suggest a really eerie future, one that 
would have chilled, particularly someone like Orwell. Yeah, but you know what is language is being dressed up in livability, but they're actually creating a, a totalitarian future. Yeah, and this is what I think is so ghastly and horrible, and it's it's the perfect indication of the problem I perceive, is that the language you know that Gov uses to promote traditionalism and cute English towns like Poundbury, is identical to the you know to the language that uh, a dystopian sci-fi creation like Neom is promoted with. Is that tell us a little extent, bit about you know, Neom, um, uh, uh, Rainier? What exactly is it? Well, Neom is a, you know, is the emergence of a state within a state. It is like a special economic zone in Saudi Arabia, where massive construction projects uh, are meant to attract largely a new population for a country that is preparing for a future after oil. You know, like the Emirates, with small vessels of modernization, uh, you know, diversifying their economy building up a huge real estate market, the tourist market, et cetera, et cetera, with a lot of expatriates in order to, you know, make their economies robust when oil would run out. I mean, Saudi is the last place where oil runs out, is now slowly preparing for something like this with a vision they call Vision 2030, uh, of which Neom is a showcase. You know, and like the Chinese experimented with exceptions from communism with the special economic zones in the 80s, I, I suspect that Saudi, you know, uh, experiments with zones exempt from traditionalism and exempt from the restrictions existing in Saudi Arabia in, in, in the small enclave that is called Neom. But I mean, modernization of a place is very, very different thing from uh, a liberation of a place. I mean, yeah. if you see anything in the 21st century is that Modern, I mean, China is an extremely modern state, and the more modern it gets, somehow the less democratic and free it gets. And I, I think there is, I mean, the jury is out, I have to say, because what on Neom? Uh, I think the jury in Saudi is out because I, mean, I don't the think numbers they are bad now, and the numbers were bad then. in Saudi Arabia, do they? I mean, um, the, the language that they use, uh, the no, uh, I meant, yeah, I meant the jury yeah, in a more. Ignore yeah. the livability and environmental crisis facing our world's cities, and Neom is at the forefront of delivering new and imaginative solutions to address these issues. It could have been written by a dystopian Orwell. Yeah, it could have been written by Michael Gove as well. I mean, that's the irony. That's well, maybe we should send idea. Michael Gov to Neom. They deserve each other. Um, that would be a, that would be a very good idea, but I'm not sure if he's not already there. Well, in in spirit, if not in person, I wonder, Arania, whether his whether all this is particularly new. Back in the late eighteenth um, century, uh, Jeremy Bentham, with his brother, I think it was, his brother was called yeah, Samuel yeah. Bentham, they went to build similar sorts of enlightened places for the future yeah. in Russia, working for Catherine the Great, and of course, it, it was here that. Bentham came up with his notion of the panopticon, which yeah. is, it seems, what Neom and, and, and new Chinese cities are also trying to replicate. Is history repeating itself? Maybe. I mean, Jeremy Bentham was an inspiration for the book because, I mean, he built the panopticon in the name of happiness. I mean, his philosophy of utilitarianism uh, and, 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 you know, that whatever was good was what made the largest... Possible, num possible number of people happy and created the largest possible 
uh, happiness was was the measure of good, and he built the Panopticon. And I think the irony is is perfect there. You know that the prison typology we come to know in the centuries after was actually founded on the notion of happiness, of the makeability of happiness. And and you're very very right that you know one could argue uh, one could argue the same about Neon. Yeah, and it. I mean, talking well, about. I mean, the, the, yeah, but the the stories, I mean, Orwell's nineteen eighty four, of course. The the nightmare, I mean, it was nightmarish on many fronts, but the real dystopian quality was that there were cameras in every room. And, of course, what Neom and these Chinese cities um, are built on, if that's the right metaphor, is radical, to, to borrow some language from Silicon Valley, radical transparency. Uh, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg famously said, well, what are you afraid of? Uh, if if we, we watch everything you do, you shouldn't be embarrassed by anything. This was the old Silicon Valley mantra, which yeah. I'm guessing has been taken up by MBS and, um, and the Chinese. Well, China. China in particular. Yeah. So, so uh, coming back to architecture, Rainier, and homes um, and, and, and buildings, should the goal of buildings be as a, some sort of counter to utilitarianism, as a protection of privacy? doesn't matter what they look like as, no, as long as no one can actually see it. I think that's a very interesting notion. I think that the, the term transparency, of course, exists on, on either side of the political spectrum too. And transparency was uh, for a long uh, time uh, one of the ideals of modern architecture. You know the, the the technology that allowed us to apply vast panes of glass, uh, you know, only to regret it later. But that transparency was an ideal that a more transparent society would be a more fair society. And it's increasingly becoming clear that there are two sides to that battle. You know that a transparent society is also a society of surveillance, uh, uh, as it comes out to be, and the internet. You know, it plays a role in either direction. It fosters emancipation in some way. It fosters a new egalitarianism in some way. And it fosters totalitarianism in another way. And it's almost like the two are short-circuited. Indeed, when all is visible, uh, supposedly there are no more taboos. But that's not the case. When all is visible, all is available, uh, not necessarily with good consequences. So I think it's an interesting of no uh, notion to think of architecture as a form of resistance uh, against that. Yeah, architecture is the building of walls rather than the taking of down yeah. of them. We, we need walls. What about, uh, Rainier, the, since COVID, the, the debate, the conversation about working from home, the end of the office? We did show with my old friend Julia Hobsbawm about this. She's one of the world's leading authorities on the collapsing of the office and the home. I work out of home. I'm not sure whether you're talking to me from your office or your home or-, or From or my home. Which is both. How does this play into the abuse of language and architecture? Should we be celebrating working from home or should we actually embrace the ideal of the office? Well, I, 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 I never thought I would embrace the ideal of the office until for two years I had to work from home almost continuously. I started to love what I used to hate, so I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, the notion of the off, office changes. There is the discovery of COVID was that, yes, there are certain things you can do perfectly from home. There are other things, you know, uh, working from home also means that if you do group work, you're all apart. 
and being together online isn't really the same thing as working uh, in a room. One of the other things I found very problematic about working from home is that my home was no longer my home. I mean, exactly the walls of my home became penetrable by digital equipment and cameras, and, and I became accessible in my own home all the time, you know, having meetings border-to-border-to-border to border to border meetings, no excuse to be absent uh, anymore, and therefore, you know, 100% available, which is exactly the kind of transparency I think you're alluding uh, to, you know. The, so my wall, my home used to have walls, but then when I had to work from home all of the times, those walls were pretty ineffective. Yeah, and I wonder what you make of the whole WeWorks phenomenon. We've done some shows on WeWorks, another company and a series of individuals who abused language. The truth about WeWorks, of course, is is MeWorks. And this idea <laughs> of, uh, of, of transforming the office into, you know, the cult of the community and collaboration, which, of course, is another misuse or abuse of language. What do you make of all these new places of sharing in modern uh, cities. I was just in LA a couple of weeks ago and my son showed me one. Uh, increasingly, all these buildings are, are looking the same. They're looking like a kind of convergence of hotels and stores yeah. and yeah. offices and homes. And, and I, I think that's an architectural ideal. They're meant to look like that. Uh, yeah, they Oh, I mean, but still they're places to work. Don't be fooled, you know. Yeah. No matter how much you transform an office into a boot camp or a playground or whatever they are converted in these days, they are places to work. And the more playful they look, the more they become an excuse to extend working hours beyond the traditional convention. And then we think we're playing all the time and, and we find we're working all the time. So even that is a very, very doubly etched phenomena i mean i think it's it, very many bad tendencies i think tend to come in a very playful disguise yeah we did a show on uh, palo alto um with matthew harris he, he's a great critic of the palo alto the city and also the idea and he says the world has become like palo alto i'm not sure how much time you've spent in palo alto but in architectural terms, it's also very chilling and perhaps it reflects all these developments. I think your point about work um, invading every aspect of life is, is, is particularly true with these big Silicon Valley companies that expect you always to be available. Right. And of course, technology now, which means that for better or worse, we are always available. Yeah, and, and that's very, I mean, I it's... I think in that context, for instance, I wouldn't be able to write books, uh, which I write, you know, in the cracks of my day, in, 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 in the moments that I'm supposedly traveling uh, somewhere and, and you have the downtime and, and you have these, all this time unaccounted for is often the most creative and productive time. And when that time is discovered, uh, you know, as potentially more time that you can be available, the less time you have to think for yourself and, uh, so uh, I find it the worrying tendencies. I'm very glad lockdowns are over, uh, and and uh, and the office is is. I mean, our office is back at work, so I can also skive off. Yeah, well, you sound to me like a good skiver, um, and you give me a good excuse. Now I can't write. I can always blame it on Google or architecture or something like that. Now, well, you're welcome. <laughs> 